It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. There is plenty of excitement, the normal celebrations in Atlanta as the Braves are heading to the World Series after beating the Dodgers Saturday night 4-2, winning the pennant, what we used to call the pennant, playing the Houston Astros. But it's really a lot deeper than that because if you'll recall just a few short months ago, it seems like about five years ago, Major League Baseball took the All-Star game away from Atlanta in protest of the restrictive Georgia voting rights law. And a lot of people in Atlanta felt that was horribly unfair, and obviously it also hurt a lot of the local merchants, so, you know, it didn't have anything to do with setting the policy. And now, of course, there'll be several World Series games in Atlanta, Georgia, which has got to be a sort of a double fist pump uh, for the Braves fans. And isn't it ironic that the World Series will now be played in Georgia and in Texas, another state uh, where there's all kinds of media and political protests over a voting rights law, not to mention the uh, abortion law in Texas. Uh, So the glamour teams, Dodgers, Red Sox, losing out to the Astros and the Braves. Um, Yesterday and today, uh, the two interviews I did yesterday on Media Buzz spread just about everywhere. And let me just stop right here and say, you know, I hope you saw the show. The segments are online. You can see them on my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, or the show pages and so forth. This is not a paid political announcement for Media Buzz. I'm not against self-promotion. I don't think it should be a felony. Um, But I do want to talk about the substance of it because let's start with Neil Cavuto, uh, a guy who has been with Fox News since... It launched in 1996, and who was willing to come on my show, his voice wasn't 100%, from his home yesterday to talk about the fact that he had COVID. And if those of you who have been listening to the podcast or saw the show yesterday know that Neil makes no secret of the fact that he has battled MS for years. He suffers from multiple sclerosis. Uh, he is a cancer survivor. Five years ago, he had open heart surgery. And, and by the way, this guy not only shows up to work every day, he hosts three shows between FNC and Fox Business. So he's just kind of an inspirational figure. And he wanted to come on to talk about the fact that essentially he believes that getting the COVID vaccines saved him from a much more dire fate, given that he is immunocompromised. I also talked on the show about John King revealing that he has MS. Um, and this is this and the interview I did with Meghan McCain picked up uh, everywhere from, you know, HuffPost, USA Today, The Independent in, in Britain, Newsweek, Yahoo, uh, just about The Wrap, just about everywhere. And, and the reason was... Uh, Neil Cavuto came on and he was passionate. He said, I know some of you uh, don't like me or don't agree with my politics or don't agree with the politics when it comes to vaccine mandates. But he said, I'm begging you, please go out and get the vaccine for yourself and the people around you. He said, life is too short to be an ass. And he just tried to cut through the politics. Now, that's very, very difficult. I mean, the first thing he said was, we live in a hyper-politicized Asian. That's true. And I went online and saw, you know, some people were saying, right on Neil, and, you know, it was a great message. And other people were going off on him, never liked him. And he said on the show, he says, look, some of you are going to call me a never-Trumper. What he was trying to do, using his own example, this is why I think, you know, both in the case of John King and Neil Cavuto and others, 
Uh, now, especially if, if vaccinated, quote, fully vaccinated, um, television hosts, anchors, correspondents, journalists, people with a bit of a high media profile get the virus even after they've been vaccinated, they can help spread the message. Nobody is saying that if you get the vaccine, you will never, ever get COVID-19. There are these breakthrough infections. But it means you almost undoubtedly will not go to the hospital. It means you almost undoubtedly will not face the prospect of dying. And that was what Neil Cavuto was saying to me on Fox yesterday. The other interview with Meghan McCain was interesting because just before we sat down to tape the interview, and and, and Meghan McCain, as you know, um, had a very ugly and bitter breakup when she left The View. She had been fighting with Joy Behar. She'd been fighting with Whoopi Goldberg. And, you know, I, I got a lot of people who said, wow, she was really candid because she talks in this audio memoir about postpartum anxiety and being depressed and having a panic attack after she had a baby and how uh, insecure she felt after some of these clashes and how she feels that the media picks on her as a, the only conservative Republican on that show, for example. All of that. And yet, just before we sat down, literally came onto her phone while she was in makeup, and then I saw it on my phone, blistering attack from Donald Trump, calling her a bully, calling her a lowlife, taking another shot at her father, the late Senator John McCain, uh, saying, by the way, I won Arizona, which he did not. And so, of course, I had no choice but to lead off with that. And then people said, well, you brought her on to bash Trump. No, I didn't. She was responding to the former president of the United States. And she kind of tried to brush it off, said, well, you know, uh, he's given me a lot of publicity for my book. And um, I said, doesn't bother you, that kind of stinging attack from a former president? She said, you know, it used to hurt, but much more so when he would attack my dad because he continues to take shots at John McCain even after his death in 2018. And then she said, I was laughing about this with my husband. Uh, I, I don't know that she's as unaffected as she says, but nevertheless, she certainly must be used to it by now. Um, and yet, when, again, you know, everybody is entitled to like her, to not like her. She's a strong television personality. Uh, she doesn't love the left either, so that's why the name of her memoir is Bad Republican. Uh, but then I saw people go online saying, you know, why didn't you ask her about when her father did this? Okay, she's not responsible for what her father did as a senator three years after his death. Like, that that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, are we all responsible for stuff that our parents do? Now, was it initially a benefit for her to be John McCain's daughter? Of course. She talks about that. But she wouldn't have risen as far in this position if she wasn't very talented. And she um, has a lot of gumption. Now, again, you, and I said to her, you know, it's a television show. People are going to say you made all this money. You're painting yourself as a victim. She said she was not doing that at all. I, so I highly recommend that you check it out. All right, getting to some things in the news here. I am still just shocked, appalled, horrified, along with the rest of the country over this accidental shooting on the movie set, Alec Baldwin. Uh, and increasingly, and I think there's a consensus forming. This was not Alec Baldwin's fault. I mean, he was crying. He has said there were no words to describe how awful he feels about the death uh, of his cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, and the injury to the director. Um, and it turns out when the, when the, when the 911 call was made, the person who made the call on the film crew in Santa Fe 
said that it was the assistant director who had the responsibility, quote, he was supposed to check the guns. According to the New York Times, that assistant director is a guy named Halls. And Halls, uh, he's an industry veteran. He's worked on Fargo and The Matrix Reloaded. Guess what? He's been the subject of complaints from various film professionals for years. The complaints largely revolve around his regard for safety protocols and on-set behavior. There have been two accidental discharges on that set of that movie, Rust, before this. Uh, here's uh, a director, Antonia Bogdanovich. I wonder if she's related to another person by that name. Dave doesn't always follow the rules. She's worked with him. And six camera crew members walked out. This is hours before the tragedy. Over late pay and working conditions. And so, when there was labor strife, it looks like, according to the affidavit they brought in this guy, maybe it was there all along. I'm not entirely clear on that. And I'm not going to prejudge. I don't know all the facts of the case. But clearly, clearly, the gun was not checked. Somebody handed it to Alec Baldwin. They said, this is a cold gun. The term for there's no live ammunition in it. Now, some people say, well, he should have checked it. I, I don't know. The guy's an actor. He has people he depends on for that. Do you think he wanted to injure anyone? you think he wanted to kill anybody? It is just heartrending. this young woman who had so much promise, Helena Hutchins. It's just awful. And there's a lot more to learn about this. Uh, also in the news, or non-news, I should say, so over the weekend, President Biden had Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer over to his place in Delaware and, you know, White House put out a statement, they're making progress. I, you know, I just think we should ban. There should just be an absolute decree saying you can't, on something like this, you can't quote anybody as saying we've made progress. When you come out and show us what the progress was, then that's news. Otherwise, it's just talk. It's empty. It's hot air. The name of my second book, Hot Air. Um, they continue to make progress, said the White House will have their staffs work on follow-ups from the meeting and agreed to stay in close touch. In other words, they don't have a deal. Simple as that. Uh, AP quoting a source is saying Joe Manchin appears to be on board with White House proposals. Remember, they're not having to pull back on the taxes because Kirsten Sinema doesn't like taxes on richer people or corporations. So now there'll be taxes only on certain corporations. I don't even know what that means. Maybe the ones that are paying zero and billionaires. If you're a billionaire, so I don't know, what are there, a thousand billionaires in America? Of course that can't make up for all the money, and there's going to be a lot of accounting gimmicks here. Nancy Pelosi goes on CNN State of the Union. I think we're pretty much there now, she said. Uh, she said, when asked when, she, when there would be a deal in hand, she said, we're almost there. It's just the language of it. That's right. It's just the language of it, because if you don't have the language of it, you don't have a deal. She said 90% of the bill has been agreed upon and written, but didn't specify a final number for the spending. Wouldn't you think that the final number, uh, remember it just had been $3.5 trillion and now it's down to about $1.75 trillion. Wouldn't you think that that would be a key part? Like If that's the 10%, then it's, and it's meaningless. All right. I, I mean, I, I have the sense they're inching closer to a deal, but wake me up when they have one. All right. Uh, you know, I talked, um, what was it, about two weeks ago, 10 days ago, uh, Jeff Bezos getting all of this great publicity for the Blue Origin flight with William Shatner, who was fabulous, Captain Kirk, 
And that was terrific. And I said it completely overshadowed this expose in Bezos' own newspaper, the Washington Post, um, about uh, a toxic and dysfunctional culture at Blue Origin that was said to involve safety. Well, today, the New York Times has a deep dive on another Bezos company. That would be Amazon. You're probably familiar with it. Maybe you see the vans riding around. They seem to be everywhere, these vans. Okay, here's the lead of the piece. A year ago, Tara Jones, an Amazon warehouse worker in Oklahoma, cradled her newborn, glanced at her pay stub on her phone, noticed she had been underpaid by a significant chunk, 90 bucks out of $540. The mistake kept repeating even after she reported the issue. She had taken accounting classes at a community college. She was so exasperated, she wrote an email to Jeff Bezos. I'm behind on bills all because the pay team messed up, she wrote. I'm crying as I write this email. Now, what she didn't know was that this message set off an internal investigation and a discovery. It wasn't just her. For a year and a half, Amazon had been shortchanging new parents, patients dealing with medical crises, and other vulnerable workers on leave, according to a confidential report on the findings. So this comes from internal documents. Amazon spokeswoman says, hey, you know what? We're still identifying and repaying workers to this day. In other words, Amazon's not denying this. It's a colossal screw-up. You're making $540 take-home pay, and you're missing 90 in every pay period? That's a crisis for you. And look, there's been reports for years about difficult, uh, you know, some would even say abusive conditions in the warehouses. Uh, you know, the people who make it possible for all of us to go click, 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 okay, you know, send me a new shirt, send me uh, some toiletries, send me a computer, whatever you order on Amazon. Uh, there's more from this story. Um, if you work for Amazon and you had to, you know, you had a medical visit or something like that, uh, you were put down as a no-show. Doctor's notes vanish into the black holes of Amazon databases. Employees struggle to reach their case managers. Whole system was run on a patchwork of programs that often didn't speak to one another. Some workers who were ready to return to work, I guess, found the system was too backed up to process them, resulting in weeks or months of lost income. And so the larger point here is Amazon prioritizes the customer experience, and that's great. And the company's been fabulously successful as a result. But it seems like its own, many of its own workers have been getting the shaft as a result. And this is a really well-reported piece that, by the way, Amazon is not denying. Um, you know how these items surface in the media from time to time? Well, so-and-so is in trouble at such and such a network. Um, it can be a pretty mean business. So New York Post, page 6, has a piece that says Nora O'Donnell is in danger of losing the top spot at the CBS Evening News as part of a cost-cutting exercise. She, of course, is the CBS anchor. And, um, you know, she had been uh, kind of a star on the morning show. Once worked for NBC, went to CBS. She was on CBS This Morning with Gail King. There were reports of tension there. I don't know. But, you know, if you're one of three co-hosts and you're asked to be the CBS Evening News anchor... You take it, right? Uh, this piece says that uh, she got a package of $8 million a year, three-year contract that expires next spring. That's probably why somebody's putting this out. And uh, the thing is, when Nora O'Donnell got the job, she had been living in, in here in D.C. with her husband, uh, 
who's known locally as Chef Jeff, because that's the name of one of the restaurants he runs, Jeff Tracy. They've got three kids, and she had been up in New York for the morning show, she'd been commuting, so she got a commitment to move the CBS News to Washington. So now there's a new co-president uh, who, who, say, who says, we've got to save some money here. Why are we running the CBS Evening News out of Washington? It would be cheaper to bring it to New York. So there may be something to that. Uh, but the president, whose name is Kemlani, Niraj Kemlani, denies the story to New York Post. No plans to move the Evening News from Washington, nor is presence in Washington Elevated the CBS Evening News' coverage on all fronts, politics, breaking news, and on and on. Um, in addition to making headlines, the program is gaining audience share. So part of the thing here is that she's being blamed for the fact that the CBS Evening News is in third place. Well, you know what? The CBS Evening News was in third place under Scott Pelley. The CBS Evening News was in third place under Katie Couric, uh, who um, was paid more than twice as much as Nora. The CBS Evening News was in third place under Bob Schieffer, who took over when Dan Rather was kind of forced out. The CBS Evening News was in third place under Dan Rather. Early when he took over, he was in first place, and then it slid to third. So a whole lot of people have not been able to get that network news broadcast out of third place compared to NBC and ABC. So to now single out um, Nora, Sounds a little unfair. And by the way, if you're not happy with the performance, you want to save money, whatever, then just do it. Don't start a leaking campaign, uh, a trial balloon, to see if you can get rid of her. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzbeater coming your way in just a moment. All right. Let me move along here. So I have a, uh, it'll be up later today, uh, after the Buzz segment I did on new internal Facebook documents. There's been a whole lot of these, as you know, the original set uh, leaked to the Wall Street Journal by the Facebook whistleblower, Frances Haugen. And she apparently got even more documents than she has turned over to the SEC. And uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. It's, It's new. It breaks new ground. I even saw an AP report today saying that Facebook was warned but didn't take aggressive enough action about the fact that Folks in the Middle East were using Facebook to trade maids or housekeepers. Just unbelievable stuff. And a lot of internal complaints about fomenting, or at least I should say, um, acting as a conduit for violence leading up to and even on January 6th. And again, this is not Francis Haugen's opinion, my opinions, outside critics' opinions. Facebook executives in internal memos saying that we've fallen down on the job. Why are we even working here? Haven't we learned after all these years uh, to to take uh, lies and misinformation off the site? Um, But here's the backstory. In this latest batch of thousands of pages of internal Facebook documents, 17 news organizations had all agreed uh, that they would publicize it at the same time. So they imposed an embargo on themselves. And these include the New York Times, the Washington Post, NBC, CNN, the Associated Press, the Atlantic, and others. And the idea was that they would all publish today. Because look, the, there's, a, there's so, many, so much paper to go through that if everybody just scrambles to be first, you know, you get kind of 
a rush job. It can be shoddy. Maybe somebody makes a mistake. So it actually makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's a federal antitrust violation. By the way, people who think that there are all these media conspiracies, what I'm about to tell you shows the media can't conspire because they're just way too competitive and way too disorganized. You know, the phrase two-car funeral comes to mind. So everybody's going to publish this morning. What happens? The New York Times decides to go ahead and publish Friday night. When that happens, uh, all hell breaks loose. And um, so suddenly, these other organizations that had pledged to, to follow the embargo that they all agreed on said, well, screw this, I'm not going to be left behind. So then the Washington Post puts out a story, and then others put out a story, AP puts out a story. And Ben Smith of the New York Times um, posted uh, a screenshot of a Slack conversation on Friday night as, and said this has devolved into a pretty bitter argument. One unnamed um, participant saying, my editor says it's the NY Times doesn't have to abide by these rules that we are out. I'm really sorry. This sucks. And now it's a media story. And it's true. Um, so now, so everybody ended up jumping the gun after the Times story was published. NBC, CNN, Washington Post, Bloomberg, and others followed. I have been in this situation so many times. It's usually not the media imposing the bargain. It's usually, you know, some scientific journal or some group that wants to give time to news organizations to do a good job. It doesn't want to favor one or the other. And then suddenly, sometimes maybe it's a publisher. And you, sometimes you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I will not publish anything about this book until such and such a day, such and such a time. And then somebody else does. And sometimes they'll say, well, we didn't violate the embargo because we got this independently. And who the hell knows? But at that point, you know, the lid is off. And I have never broken an embargo in my life, but I have rushed to get stories into the paper or onto the air because somebody else did. And that's why they're, they're great in theory, but the embargoes oh, very frequently end up collapsing in just this situation. Uh, this just looks like a total mess. Uh, a couple other things here. One of the banes of my existence are these leaf blowers, particularly in this pandemic age when you do work at home, when you're trying to record a podcast at home, and all of a sudden, these deafening sounds. And you just you walk around the neighborhood, and this is not just my neighborhood, and you just hear this ear-splitting stuff, and then somebody finishes, and then they go to somebody else's house, and it goes on and on and on. I don't understand. I really, truly don't understand why it's legal to have such high decibel contraptions. I understand people want to take care of their lawns and their houses and, you know, keep a nice grass front or your backyard and then leaves could be a problem, and particularly this kind of year when the leaves are falling. But it just drives me nuts. Uh, and maybe I'm just noticing it more because I'm home during the day more than I used to be. I'm still going in the office now, but not every day. One second. <clears throat> So here's an op-ed in the New York Times saying that gasoline-powered leaf blowers, and there is some effort to impose some noise restrictions on these, they exist in a special category of environmental hell. I never really thought about this part. Spewing pollutants, carbon monoxide, smog-forming nitrous oxides, carcinogenic hydrocarbons into the atmosphere at literally a breathtaking rate. Now, this is an op-ed, so it's this author's opinion. Uh, this is not new. It's potentially catastrophic. A 2011 study found that a two-stroke gasoline-powered leaf blower spewed out more pollution than a 6,000-pound Ford Raptor pickup truck. That is, like, eye-popping. 
or ear splitting. Uh, an engineer at the company that did the study said that hydrocarbon emissions from a half hour of yard work with the two-stroke leaf blower are about the same as a 3,900-mile drive from Texas to Alaska in a Raptor. Um, and by the way, it's outmoded technology, according to this piece. Um, they combine oil and gas in a single chamber, which gives the machine more power while remaining light enough to carry. The design also means it is very loud, as much as a third of the fuel is spewed into the air as unburned aerosol. How loud? Well, according to Audubon magazine, some produce more than 100 decibels of low-frequency wall-penetrating sound, or as much noise as a plane taking off, at levels that can called tinnitus and hearing loss, or tinnitus and hearing loss with long exposure. So it's like living next to an airport and the planes are taking off. Now, obviously, that's not happening every 10 minutes, but sometimes it seems that way. All right, that's my rant on leaf blowers. And one more piece here from The Atlantic. So a lot going on now where people are looking at the impact of the uh, social media and also just the impact of the internet itself. You know, something that we all now take for granted, we carry around in our pockets, but how it has changed culture, society, the world, our brains. Uh, this piece in The Atlantic says, you know, lots wrong with the internet. Much of it boils down to one problem. I love this. We are all constantly talking to one another. Take that in every sense. Before online tools, we talk less frequently and with fewer people. The average person had, you know, a handful of conversations a day. And the biggest group she spoke in front of was maybe a wedding reception or a company meeting, a few hundred people at most. Maybe her statement would be recorded, but there were few mechanisms for it to be amplified and spread around the world. I mean, unless you happen to be on television or radio, I suppose. Online media gives every person access to channels of communication previously reserved for big business, starting with the web in the 90s, continuing into user-generated content of the arts and social media of the 2010s. Um, control over public discourse has moved from media organizations, governments, and corporations to average citizens. Finally, people could publish writings, images, videos, and other material without first getting the endorsement of publishers or broadcasters. Ideas spread freely beyond borders. And I'll just stop there and say, look, there's a part of this that is fabulous, that is terrific. It breaks the monopoly of, of government and media. It lets people communicate with the world. They can develop a following. They don't have to have an advanced degree. They don't have to have XYZ Media Corporation behind them. They can just put out their thoughts, their ideas. Yes, unfortunately, there's a dark side. They can put out their misinformation and lies as well. Consumers have to decide for themselves what's real and what's BS. But, you know, we just all, it seems to me, take this for granted. I often think if suddenly I was back in 1990 or 1985 and I knew what the world was like today, I mean, you would find it impossibly slow and you know, hard to reach people. Everyone's not carrying a cell phone and you wouldn't be able to... You wouldn't be able to tweet. I, maybe that was not, would not be uh, such a bad thing. So uh, the piece goes on to talk about, you know, uh, con conspiracy theorists, QAnon, Pizzagate, uh, the Capitol riot and so forth, uh, how random Facebook messages scam your mother, uh, how ill-thought-out tweet ruin lives. Okay, I mean, that part of the indictment is pretty familiar. But then here's the larger question about talking. And I'm doing a lot of talking on the podcast because this is just what you do. Uh, the quantity of material being produced and the size of the audiences 
became unalloyed goods. The past several years, debate over online speech affirmed the state of affairs. The platformers invented metrics to encourage engagement, such as likes and shares. Popularity and reach became social values, too. Hey, I'm pretty popular. I have 100,000 followers. I have a million followers, whatever. Even on the level of the influencer, the media personality, or the online mob, scale produced power and influence and wealth, or at least the fantasy that you had power or influence or perhaps wealth. So the capacity to reach an audience some of the time became contorted into the right to reach every audience all of the time. Isn't that interesting? So remember, you know, the world used to be you basically talk to people, family, friends, co-workers, and maybe you had a big meeting or maybe, as they say, you gave a toast at a wedding. But now, day and night, you can reach anybody who's willing to click on what you have to say. Here's where I part company uh, with the Atlantic author. What if you could post to Facebook only once a day, a week, or month, or only to a certain number of people? What if, after an hour of that day expired, uh, the post expired, like Snapchat? Or, after a certain number of views, when it reached a certain geographic distance from its origins, it self-destructed? That wouldn't stop bad actors from being bad, but it would reduce their ability to exude that badness into the public sphere. To which I would reply, yeah, but who gets to decide those rules? And what about all the good things? And, you know, how are you really solving the problem by saying, okay, if you live in Florida, you can only communicate with the surrounding five states, but people on the West Coast or people up in Maine can't hear or see. Remember, a lot of this is video or pictures, what you have to say. Or it all vanishes after a day. I mean, it seems like a pretty crude solution to what may well be a problem. Uh, but, you know, ultimately it's censorship. Somebody's going to have the rule. Somebody, people's speech are going to be limited. And then a lot of people are not going to like that. So I think it's more of an intellectual exercise. I don't see this happening. Everybody will continue to be able to spew. It doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to debate ways to get hate and misinformation under control without trampling on free speech. But, of course, that is the very question, uh, the nature of free speech and who gets to decide it, and the power of these tech giants like Facebook. Therefore, that's why all these internal documents are so important, even if the squabbling 17 news outlets couldn't agree on the rules for when that material should be published. Hey, I hope you had a good weekend. Um, this is a particularly good week to check out the clips for Media Buzz. As I said, Neil Cavuto, um, Megan McCain, with other guests as well, talking about the CNN town hall with Joe Biden, and all kinds of stuff. Now, of course, it's Monday, which means i got to find a new column to write about, new stuff for next week's show. The News Watch never stops. That was the slogan of a New York radio station, and I guess it's kind of become everybody's slogan. None of our news watches ever stop, at least online. Uh, we're back here tomorrow with more Buzz Media. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.